and welcome back to the A-Level Politics Show. I'm sorry, folks, it has been a long time since um, I did a podcast. Um, Events have really overtaken us here at uh, the A-Level Politics Show towers uh, with the schools and colleges closing. Um, We've been adjusting to life, just as I'm sure you have. Um, Homeschooling children, um, sending emails and work packs and things like that to the students I teach. Um, And so the podcast has taken a bit of a backseat. But we've settled down here. Uh, We've got enough um, supplies. We've got some fruit. We've got some eggs at last. Uh, First world problems. We've got plenty of bog roll. Um, and so we are all fine here. Um, I really hope that you are fine during these anxious times. Um, and I thought before I start today's show, which will focus on Parliament and parliamentary sovereignty, I want to set you a challenge because um, you may have been reading the news a lot. I hope you have. Uh, but the news isn't much fun at the moment, quite frankly. And so I thought I'd set you a challenge uh, that might be uh, quite fun. Um, you will see that the icon uh, for the A-Level Politics show has changed. We now have uh, a picture of the White House, but not any old White House, a Lego Lego White House built by myself. Okay, I got it in a special pack and it, and it had instructions uh, and things like that, but it's a Lego White House. Now, I would like to see your creations. I want to see which political institution you can create uh, using Lego, using any material you can get your hands on. Um, And I promise I'll give you a shout out to the show, um, on the show, um, if uh, you manage to do a creation that really, really impresses me. Um, And we'll make sure that we, we put your picture Um, of your political institution, be it created by Lego or whatever, um, on the show's icon. How about that? So you'll be famous, as Andy Warhol uh, said, for all of five minutes. Um, Or is it five seconds? I can't remember. Anyway, uh, do get going with that and just tweet me. um, At Nick D'Souza um, is my um, Twitter handle. Um, Is that what you call it as well? I'm so old. Um, Anyway, just tweet me with your pictures of uh, your wonderful um, uh, creations Um, and um, I will uh, have a look at them and we can spread a little bit of joy and nonsense uh, in these times where uh, we're full of worry. Okay, folks, after the break, it's on with the show. The question we are going to look at then is this. Evaluate the view that Parliament is still sovereign. Now, first of all, we need to define sovereignty. Sovereignty is the idea, or parliamentary sovereignty, the idea that Parliament is the supreme decision-making body in the UK. In theory, any decision made elsewhere in the UK can be overturned by an act of Parliament. No Parliament is bound by previous decisions. No Parliament can bind its successors. And this is why the Labour Party was able to devolve power to London again after Thatcher had abolished the Greater London Council. No parliament, as I said, can bind future parliaments. And this is why the Tories can can update, as they call it, the Human Rights Act now that they have an 80 seat majority in the House of Commons. So how will we approach this question of parliamentary sovereignty? Well, it's important to remember um, 
to compare the theory of sovereignty, and that means where legal formal power lies, and that's with Parliament, and the reality of sovereignty, and that means where decisions are effectively taken on a day-to-day -day basis, who in reality actually has power. To answer this question, it's important to consider these conflicting claims of sovereignty, the conflicting claims of Parliament being sovereign versus political sovereignty, versus popular sovereignty, uh, versus the impact of EU membership upon sovereignty and the continued influence of the EU even after the UK leaves it and the impact of devolution upon sovereignty. What is my direction? It's perhaps safe to argue that the UK has multiple sovereignties in conflict with each other. From 2017 to 2019, Parliament became increasingly assertive due to the Brexit process and the advent of a hung Parliament. But after the 2019 general election, parliamentary sovereignty appears to have given way to political sovereignty as the election has returned the UK to a majority government. So thus, the reality of sovereignty is that the government, the cabinet, particularly the prime minister, exercises the most power. And that is even more true um, with the onset of COVID-19 and the crisis management needed to tackle it. Now, devolved sovereignty, regardless of what happens uh, with um, Westminster and the majority that the Tories have, dissolved sovereignty will continue to conflict with parliamentary sovereignty, um, while Brexit will likely limit uh, the constraints upon parliamentary sovereignty. So I'm um, going to take a moment uh, to talk about synoptic links. And what synoptic links essentially means uh, is ensuring that you use words from other parts of the course in your essay on sovereignty. Now, political sovereignty, parliamentary sovereignty, that is a question for paper two. To get synoptic links, you have to refer back to words that you use in paper one. And this is for the Edexcel uh, side of, of things. Um, so let's just try and throw some words out there that we can use. The shift in sovereignty from parliament to the devolved bodies links to the adoption, I think, of a pluralist democracy, which is a paper one phrase, as it allows pressure groups more access points to exercise influence. Um, if you are a pressure group, you can go to the Scottish Parliament, for example, and exercise influence there. You don't just have to go to Westminster. The increasing use of referendums, and that's a paper one word, referendums, links to a shift from a predominantly representative democracy where parliament is sovereign to a more direct democracy where the people are sovereign. Again, we're using phrases like direct and representative democracy, which are paper one words. And you, 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 you plonk one of them into um, an essay uh, for uh, paper two essay, um, and that will give you access to the higher levels, particularly level five. Britain's perceived loss of sovereignty to uh, the EU is reflected in the divisions within the major political parties, particularly between the new right, who tend to be more uh, Eurosceptic, and One Nation Conservatives, who tend to be more pro-EU. Um, and so by using some of those factions of the political parties, political parties is a paper one topic, you throw it into an essay uh, for paper two, and that's your synoptic link. That's the, the door opening, if you like, to uh, level five. Um, but be careful, by the way, when we're talking about the new right or One Nation Conservatives and what they think about the EU, because the new right is split um, and 
Boris Johnson calls him a one nation con himself a one nation conservative and yet he is the chief architect of Brexit. Anyway, after the break, we're going to be uh, moving back to focus on um, sovereignty and whether Parliament still has it. So I want to talk a little bit more about political sovereignty, where power effectively lies. Um, and the argument is that it rests with the governing party, the cabinet and the prime minister. So political sovereignty refers to the body, the institution or group that in practice holds the most influence over decision making. The governing party in parliament is usually able to dominate it as first past the post often provides a strong majority of seats. Notice how I've used a paper one word there or phrase, first past the post, plonked it into a paper two topic. That's my synoptic link. That's my access to level five. The fusion of powers allows the government to sit in parliament and to control the agenda. The Conservative Party in 1988 was able to steer through controversial measures on banning the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools. Uh, this was called the Section 28 regulations, owing to its large parliamentary majority under Thatcher. This example shows that the government and the governing party have effective control of parliament and therefore enjoyed the reality of power, i.e. political sovereignty. Arguably, political sovereignty has become even more concentrated in the cabinet and in the prime minister. In April 2019, the cabinet met for seven hours to effectively decide the future direction of the Brexit talks under Theresa May's government, coming to a decision to request an extension of Article 50. Now, this example shows that the cabinet is taking decisions rather than parliament. We could go even further and accept that political sovereignty rests with only one person, the prime minister, and that this one person has usurped, that is, taken over parliamentary sovereignty. The prime minister's role prerogative powers allow them to take decisions separate of parliament. For example, Theresa May authorised the bombing of Syria in 2018 without parliamentary approval. Boris Johnson has given his senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, authority to hire and fire the advisers of other ministers. However, let's not go too far. Parli uh, political sovereignty is not fixed and is restricted by parliamentary assertion. A party with a thin or non-existent majority will find it much more difficult to control the parliamentary agenda. The government's Brexit deal negotiated with the EU was defeated three times in 2019 and in the first instance by a record 230, 230 votes. John Burkow, the former speaker, became an increasingly important figure, using his role as guardian of parliamentary procedures to thwart government attempts to repeatedly bring back the same failed vote. In spring and in autumn 2019, Parliament voted to take over the agenda of Parliament using Standing Order 24, wrestling it away from the government. It held a series of indicative votes on Brexit and, back, and backbencher Yvette Cooper submitted a bill in April 2019 on ruling out a no-deal Brexit. Parliament also passed the Benn Act against the government's wishes to further that end. All of these examples show that government dominance of Parliament is far from absolute and that the extent of political sovereignty for the governing party relies really on its majority. Now, the Prime Minister's political power has also been limited by Parliament in recent years. They now need to seek parliamentary approval to dissolve Parliament under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. 
the Supreme Court ruled that Parliament was sovereign in the 2017 Gina Miller case, denying the then Prime Minister Theresa May the right to trigger Article 50 using her royal prerogative powers. Similarly, the court ruled that Parliament was not prorogued, another word for suspended, in September 2019, despite Boris Johnson's insistence that it was. The court ruled that it was for Parliament to decide whether it was suspended or not. These court cases affirm the right of Parliament to give or take away the Prime Minister's right to negotiate with foreign powers, as in the first Gina Miller case on Article 50, and to control the parliamentary agenda, as in the second Gina Miller case in September 2019, thus confirming that Parliament can limit political sovereignty as it sees fit. But what of popular sovereignty? Hasn't that challenged parliamentary sovereignty? Now, popular sovereignty is the idea that power ultimately rests with citizens who vote in referendums and elections, which in practice are binding on Parliament, if not in theory. Scottish voters said yes to devolution and Welsh voters chose to extend the powers of the Welsh Assembly in 2011. These decisions were then confirmed or rubber stamped by Parliament. The outcome of the EU referendum in 2016 was not formally binding on Parliament, but in practice the people spoke, politicians knew it and Britain left the EU as a result of the 52% yes vote on the 31st of January 2020. Most MPs backed the Article 50 bill when it came before Parliament, even if they campaigned to remain in the EU so as not to resist the will of the people. These examples show that direct democracy, which champions people power, is hindering representative democracy, which promotes parliamentary sovereignty. Oh, look, there's a load of uh, synoptic links there in that last sentence. The gridlock in Parliament following the EU referendum showed that Parliament is no longer able to act decisively, undermining the notion that Parliament is sovereign. However, Parliament did not initially reflect the will of the people after the Brexit vote, which demonstrates that popular sovereignty, again, just like political sovereignty, is not absolute. Three years on from the EU referendum and the UK Parliament had still to decide the next steps on EU withdrawal. Parliamentarians had to still grapple with the deficiencies of direct democracy, most notably its inability to handle nuance and detail. Often referendums are just simply binary choices, yes or no, leave or remain, and the detail was left to the politicians to figure out. This meant that Parliament has had to step in and try and fill the gaps on how or even whether the UK could leave the EU. And this example shows that Parliament still has a huge role in shaping the decisions made by the people. The first-past-the-post system, synoptic link alert, usually distorts the will of the people by producing disproportionate results, and so the extent of popular sovereignty is limited as many voters do not get the representatives that they want. First-past-the-post also can produce strong majority government that can then claim a mandate to take decisions rather than the people themselves. If popular will is divided, as shown by the EU referendum and also by the 2017 general election, the net effect is to empower ordinary MPs who hold more power in a hung parliament, thus allowing parliament to take control of the decision making. So you can see that no one form of sovereignty uh, seems to be dominant in this country and political sovereignty and 
popular sovereignty are movable feasts. Let's now talk about the EU and its impact upon parliamentary sovereignty and UK sovereignty more broadly. Arguably, the EU took away sovereignty and until a final agreement is reached on the UK's long term relationship with, the, with that bloc, it will continue to do so. Let's look at the history books. The Factor Tame case, whereby the law lords, as they were then called, the precursor to the Supreme Court, ruled that um, EU law took precedence over UK law, demonstrated that UK law and therefore the UK parliamentary law was subservient to the EU. The UK Parliament therefore had to implement EU law. UK courts and governments must accept the rulings of the European Court of Justice and despite leaving on the 31st of January 2020, the UK is still obliged to follow those rulings until the transition period is over and we know a little bit more about our future relationship. The UK Parliament cannot introduce a law that conflicts with EU law. The same is true today despite leaving the EU. Even when selling beer in pints, the UK had to seek an opt-out to EU law that required beer to be sold in litres. Now, this opt-out meant that UK law did not conflict with EU law. Without a hard Brexit, some claim, it is, hard, it is likely that the UK will still have to comply with European Court of Justice rulings long after the UK leaves the EU. Critics of a soft Brexit, that's where you still belong to some of the uh, institutions or to some of the trading arrangements. Uh, critics of that soft Brexit claim that the UK Parliament will lose even more sovereignty as the UK will lose representation in the European Parliament and its place in the Council of Ministers, but will still have to accept EU legislation. But that, that, that's exactly the situation we've got right now um, before the final deal is struck or not struck uh, with the Johnson administration, with the Johnson government and the EU. So during this so-called transition period that we're in now, and that's the time between officially leaving the EU at the 31st of January 2020 and an eventual final deal on the long-term relationship, the UK has effectively become a rule taker rather than a rule maker since it no longer has any representation in any EU institution but must still comply with EU law in order to have access to all those markets, the single market, the customs union and so on. The Johnson government continues to insist that the UK must leave the single market and the customs union for it to win back sovereignty. And until it does so, it is not winning back that sovereignty. So all those celebrations uh, that you saw uh, in the winter of 2020 um, could well be for nothing. Um, even for hard Brexiteers, uh, if the, the end result is a deal where the UK uh, is still part of the single market in some way. Now, for supporters of Brexit, the action, the only way to remove the UK from the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, which rules on single market matters, and to give the UK freedom in signing trade deals with other countries, since remaining in the customs union means the UK will be bound to the same restrictions on imports from non-EU countries is, as I say, that hard Brexit. As of March 2020, that has not happened. However, EU membership, in whatever form, 
allowed the UK and during this transition period still does and its parliament far greater influence than it would have had if and when it leaves with no deal or a hard Brexit as they call it. It allows the UK or it, allow, it has, did allow the UK to pool sovereignty, that is to increase its influence by working with other countries. In a globalised world, it does make sense to pool resources. Uh, the pro-European view is that working with other countries actually strengthens Britain's influence and thus the influence of Parliament. All proposals agreed in Brussels ultimately still had to get approval from Parliament. Britain chose which policies it wanted to opt into and out of, such as whether to incorporate the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights into law or whether to adopt the euro. The Article 50 process of the Lisbon Treaty allows governments to notify the EU of an intention to leave the Union. So the right to leave the EU is therefore the ultimate statement of parliamentary sovereignty. No other parliament authorised this process to commence. The French aren't kicking the Brits out. Um, Britain itself is deciding to leave. That's an assertion of parliamentary sovereignty. And it was baked in to the treaties of the EU. An EU scheme to help all EU countries source ventilators during the COVID-19 outbreak is demonstrative of the increased influence each member state of the EU enjoys. They are stronger together. The UK's failure to join that scheme is demonstrative of its lack of influence and of its pending isolation. Thus, sovereignty is meaningless without influence. In our final section before the conclusion, we are going to look at devolution. Now, arguably, parliamentary sovereignty has been effectively devolved to newly created institutions such as the Scottish Parliament. The Wales Act of 2014 allowed control of some smaller taxes in Wales, um, such as stamp duty. The Wales Act 2017 establishes the Assembly and Welsh Government as a permanent feature of the UK Constitution. The Scotland Act in 2012 gave the Scottish Government the power to vary income tax up or down by 10%, as well as devolving further powers to them, for example the regulation of controlled drugs. The Act also allowed the Scottish Government to borrow up to £2.2 billion each year. And the Scotland Act 2017 devolved even more powers, including the power to set income tax bans, control over air passenger duty and to collect half of VAT raised in Scotland. It gained more control over welfare, roads, rail and on gas and oil extraction. Supporters of these acts say that Scotland now has the most powerful sub-national government in Europe. While the UK Parliament could in theory overturn any of these laws and even abolish the devolved institutions similar to what Thatcher did with London government in the 1980s, it would be politically impossible to do so without offering a referendum, since that is how these institutions were created. The prospect of Scottish independence has become such a real possibility and no Parliament in Westminster would ever risk a so-called unilateral declaration of independence um, and so therefore these laws are here to stay and Parliament, the UK Parliament, has arguably lost these powers to those devolved administrations forever. And so 
we can argue that devolved sovereignty um, has taken much of parliamentary sovereignty. However, Parliament does retain so-called reserved powers and still takes the major decisions affecting the nation. When the Supreme Court upheld parliamentary sovereignty in the 2017 Miller case, it also ruled that the devolved institutions had no legal authority to stop Brexit. Despite devolution in parts of the UK, this country remains a centralised country in which local councils enjoy few meaningful powers. George Osborne's proposed pasty tax demonstrated Westminster's tin ear to the concerns of the West Country and to regional sensitivity. Devolution was created in an uneven, asymmetrical manner. Critics of these new metro mayors in places like Manchester allege that all the government has done is pass on responsibility for cuts down to the local level. The breakdown of devolved government in Northern Ireland for three years resulted in the UK government imposing a budget on that province. So these examples show that Parliament could in future step in and help out devolved bodies that run into trouble. And indeed, with the COVID-19 outbreak, we are seeing a centralisation of crisis management uh, in Westminster. Um, and that further demonstrates that parliamentary sovereignty, despite increased powers for the devolved institutions, is alive and well. So let's look back at what we've discussed in this podcast. We've looked at political sovereignty, where power in reality lies. And we've looked at popular sovereignty, the people having the say over what Parliament does. Um, while those two types of sovereignty or forms of sovereignty are very important, Political sovereignty is what I would call a movable feast and depends on the majority uh, that the government has and the authority of the prime minister. And popular sovereignty is something that comes and goes. When you have an election, the people seem really important. Uh, and when that election over is over, the people uh, fade into the background when it comes to influence. Um, we've seen the impact of EU membership upon sovereignty and, and the arguments about whether the EU has taken parliamentary sovereignty away rests largely on your view on what sovereignty is. If you think sovereignty is about where decisions are made, then arguably, yes, EU membership did take power away from the UK because a lot of decisions were made in Brussels. But if you think sovereignty is about influence and how much clout you have around the world, then arguably leaving the EU uh, will actually reduce parliamentary sovereignty. So that one is a complex one. And then we have devolution. Undoubtedly, we've had a flow of powers from Westminster all the way to those devolved um, bodies. But devolution is uneven. Um, and in terms of crisis, as what we're seeing now with the, the COVID-19 outbreak, um, then we see um, political sovereignty jump back in. And the shots are effectively called by the government and not even parliament in that regard. So I think it, it leads us to a conclusion that in this country, we have multiple sovereignties. Parliamentary sovereignty is just one of them. Power lies in, in quite a few places, particularly the government at this stage in this crisis with this majority. Um, but this crisis will not last forever and this majority government will not last forever. And so Parliament uh, and um, the other competitors for power are 
vying all the time uh, for who takes those decisions. Um, sovereignty is something that can pop up in one place and disappear again and then pop up in another one. It is a movable feast. And so therefore, I think it's safer to talk about this idea of multiple sovereignties in conflict with each other, permanent conflict with each other. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, and before I leave, I just want to make a a personal statement about how wonderful our National Health Service is and all the people who work in it. I'm sure I speak for a lot of people, but I'm so, so proud uh, to know doctors and nurses and other people who work in the health service. And I'm so, so proud of what you are doing right now. And I just want to say thank you. During these dark hours, uh, you are our light. Until next time. Bye-bye.